2: This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show.
1: old radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner program.com Time Summer Program. the Time Summer Program. Com.
2: and my uh, guest this hour is a poet. Essayist and translator. He is the author of several uh, celebrated poetry collections and nonfiction works. He uh, served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury Department under Jimmy Carter and lives in New York City. His uh, new book, Damaged Heritage, is about the Elaine Race Massacre and a story of reconciliation by J. Chester Johnson and he joins me now by phone Chester welcome to the show well thank you thank you for inviting me um, Chester I don't know if very many people until they read your book have ever even heard of the Elaine race massacre how did it wind up on your radar because I think this is a fascinating story
3: well thank you Tom, and thank you for the question um, Well, uh, in 2008, um, I was asked by the Episcopal Church to write the Litany of Offense and Apology uh, when the Episcopal Church formally apologized at a day of repentance for its role in slavery and related evils. And as I was doing my research, I came across a 70-page document um, sort of a treatise, if you will, um, by the um, African-American historian and anti-lynching advocate Ida B. Wells, and it was entitled The Arkansas Race Riot of 1919. Now, and she proceeded to talk about this terrible event that happened in along the Mississippi River Delta um, in Phillips County, Arkansas. Well, I grew up one county removed from Phillips county, and I never heard anything about this in uh, in school or in social gatherings um church or um, any place else in in the small town in which i was uh, or uh, where I grew up and um it became somewhat of a session for me in uh, trying to learn more and more about it um, and during the course of my research, and I reached out to friends and relatives and um, high school classmates and that sort of thing and um, Very few people knew much about it and um, during the course of my my research, um, I discovered that um, my maternal grandfather, who actually reared me during the um, during the first five years of my life, my father died when I was one, and my mother didn't do particularly well for a few years, and so I I lived with my um, my maternal grandparents. But my maternal grandfather was the one who really was the twenty. I uh, was his twenty four hour project. And that and, was Lonnie. Um, that was Lonnie. Thank you. Yes, Lonnie Birch, and um, so it was during that, that that course of that research that I discovered much more about the massacre and much more about the uh, about Lonnie. And in two thousand and thirteen, I wrote a um, a long ten thousand word article that was published in a literary journal about the massacre, including the disclosure about my um, my grandfather. And interesting enough, it began to um, seep more. The knowledge of the Elaine Massacre began to seep more into the public consciousness. Um, And eventually a number of us uh, proceeded to create the Elaine Massacre Memorial Committee. There had never been a physical, permanent physical commemoration or a memorial for it and um, so over the succeeding years up until this last September um, we proceeded to to fund to design and to build this memorial which is right in front of the Phillips County uh, courthouse a gorgeous thing but um, um, so I would say I mean it, it has become It was part of the, um, many people may know about the lynching museum in Montgomery, Alabama that opened in April of last year, um, uh, that um, commemorates or gives attention to um, numerous lynchings, primarily in the South, and Elaine is included in it, and um, Black Lives Matter um, has um, had marches in Washington D.C. back in September um, of 2018, and they dedicated it to those marches to the Elaine race massacre. Um, so it is—it's definitely developed currency. And um, if you if you would like, I can sort of quickly run through exactly what the Elaine race what what happened, what why did this happen, and what were the conditions and um, and what was the outcome? Yeah, like that would to.
2: that would be great, um, Chester. And and also, you discovered a, a personal connection to it.
3: Yeah, which was my Lonnie uh, connection, um, my grandfather, and um, and I. That was that has been well. I, I guess you're also maybe talking about Sheila Walker and. Um, um the book it does dis- discuss the um reconciliation that exists that has been existing for the last 6 years I um I, an individual put Sheila Walker who is a descendant of several victims of the Elaine Race Massacre together with me um, a descendant of one of the perpetrators of the massacre and we first met in 2014, first by phone call, which actually lasted for two hours, and then we um, we met in Boston at her son's home, and and um, from there we've just developed a significant journey toward recon- reconciliation, and our f- respective families have begun to participate. In it, our spouses, our respective spouses. It's, it's really been a lovely relationship, and and Sheila actually wrote the foreword uh, to to my book. And, um, Chester? When does the book come out? It came. It was published on, on Tuesday of this week. Um, Three
2: days ago. Yeah. yeah, I haven't had the chance to get my hands on it. I've read an awful lot about the book, but I haven't had a chance to read the book <laughs> yet, so forgive me. But, no, no, uh, that's okay. But it is just now coming out and uh, will be available now. Um, uh, but, yeah, please do um, describe that and, and how you found out about Lonnie's uh, involvement.
3: Okay, yeah. Um, why don't I just uh, quickly run through the first part, which is what happened at the massacre, and then I'll yeah, segue right into um, Lonnie. Um, in 1919, at the, it was just after the end of World War One, and um, veterans were returning to America. Um, including a large number of African-American veterans who uh, had fought for their country and some were heroes and they were treated like heroes in Europe and um, they expected to come back to the United States and be treated with more equity and equal justice than, um, than had been the case when they left the shores of, uh, of this country. Um, but almost immediately, upon their return, and I'm talking about this on a national basis, um, it became clear that um, things weren't changing. And in certain parts of the country, like the, the Mississippi River Delta, it's very possible that it was getting, going to be worse. Uh, that the planners wanted to make sure that uh, African returning African-American Soldiers who then became became sharecroppers upon their return, or they picked up, they were sharecroppers before they left. um, That things hadn't changed, and maybe it gotten worse. Now, during the during World War One and subsequent, um, uh, the price of cotton had really gone through the roof. It was uh, like fifty cents a pound, and uh that was an extraordinary level in comparison to historical uh, prices um, and the sharecroppers felt in the first harvest uh that they had been treated poorly and that uh they had been given a take it or leave it price and as a result in Mississippi River Delta in the Phillips County area, uh, they hired a, um, a white lawyer out of Little Rock to negotiate for them. But even beyond that, uh, there was a decision to um, participate in a sharecropper union uh, that had been established by a person named Robert Hill, who was also a veteran who came back. Now, just let me, there's one part I'm skipping I shouldn't skip. Um, on a national basis, as these as these returning African American veterans uh, came to the country, the response by white people um, was was um, as as I said, in the same spirit of subjugation as it had been previously, and so. There became race, racial conflicts throughout this country, um, particularly in the summer of 1919. In fact, the African-American poet James Weldon Johnson uh, termed it the, um, the Red Summer of 1919. Well, um, in Phillips County, um, oh, and one other aspect of this is that White planters became very concerned, not just in terms of potential militancy of the sharecroppers, but the Russian Revolution had, had, um, had was recent history. Communism was a, was a term that was thrown around, and the connection between unionization and communism, and um, there was concern not, not just in Phillips County, but throughout the country, that um African Americans uh, could be persuaded to accept communism and and do it in a militant way, so there were these threads running through the country at the time, and clearly they were running through even probably in an exaggerated way in the Mississippi River delta um, but on the evening of September the thirtieth nineteen nineteen um there was a meeting of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union, uh, the Hoop Spur Lodge portion of that union, and, um, which was north of Elaine, a, a Arkansas, just maybe a mile and a half to two miles north. A um, hundred sharecroppers and their families met to do final signing of um, an organization and organization creation of this union. Well, about eleven o'clock, um, deputy sheriff from um, deputy sheriff of Phillips County, and a uh, and a security agent from the Missouri Pacific Railroad, which was. Uh, lawyer, Ches- chester yeah I'm I, I, sorry.
2: I hate to interrupt but i need sure. to i need you to put a comma there we'll pick this back up i have a break coming okay. up here and uh, my guest is chester johnson we're talking about the Elaine race massacre in phillips county arkansas we'll hear more about that and about uh, chester's book damaged heritage uh, when we return hello
1: darling
4: this is Elvira, mistress of the dark with tom sumner
3: Joe Bae from the Blue Lions. Dan
1: Thurling.
2: Congressman Dan Kildee, Alexander Zondrick. actor, comedian Jonah Podi,
0: Woodrow Stanley, U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow,
2: State Senator Jim Anan, comedian Brian McCree, the
0: unknown comic
2: Mark Farner, and hey, Tom. I want you to know, Tom's my friend.
3: You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview all.
4: Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
2: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with uh, author Chester Johnson about his book, Damaged Heritage, the Elaine Race Massacre, and a Story of Reconciliation. Chester, welcome back, and thanks for uh, staying with me.
3: Yeah, not not a problem. I I think we had um, stopped where the um, county uh, deputy county sheriff, as well as a security agent with the Missouri Pacific Railroad, had um, uh, arrived outside the Hoopspur Church, where the union was holding its uh, its first formal meeting, and shots were fired uh, into the church. Um, um, and the, um, deputy, the deputy sheriff um, and the Missouri-Pacific security officer did not realize that uh, the union had set up guards to try to stop any interlopers or someone trying to interfere with the, um, with the meeting, and fire was, gunfire was returned, the Missouri-Pacific agent was killed and the um, deputy sheriff was shot in the knee and he crawled, the deputy sheriff crawled to um, the railroad um, spur and within an hour or so he got himself on a train, went back into county seat, reported that there was an African-American insurrection starting in Hoopspur following morning um, large number of white planners and uh, white men within the county were deputized to um, go out to Hoopspur and stop this insurrection, which they proceeded to do, and about 15 to 20 African Americans were killed, but um, two additional white men were killed. Um, one can make an argument that they weren't killed by African Americans, but actually in um, friendly fire, uh, one certainly across uh, firing across a slough where the african Americans had sought refuge um, One of the individuals, white men it's in my opinion was shot, and possibly the other one as well f- from friendly fire um, the sheriff. Um, Called the governor said um, you know we're we have some concerns here Um the blacks have rifles and we're afraid that uh, they're going to overwhelm the white community uh, in turn the, uh, the governor of the state of Arkansas um, notified the War Department this was in the Woodrow Wilson ad- administration which was, uh, was quite racist. And um, they immediately released a federal troops out of Fort Pike, um, which is located, uh, which was located a few miles outside of Little Rock. Um, and something like um, a very large group, maybe 500 soldiers, but more even importantly, they brought with them machine guns and have proceeded over the next three days to do considerable damage, kill a large number of um, We don't know how many African Americans were actually killed. We do know that the FBI and Justice Department did an investigation um, almost immediately and determined that at least 60 to 80 African Americans were killed by the um, federal troops. Um, and combining that with the uh, the number uh, that um, the white posse's had killed on the m- morning following September the thirtieth, um, when um, uh, when the Hoopspur um, meeting had been um, had had been held, um, we also know that um, certain vigilante groups came over. From Mississippi and uh, down from Tennessee, uh, along with um, uh, white men with rifles from neighboring communities, and in fact, that's what I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm sure that that's where um, uh, Lonnie made his entrance at, um, in the lane to participate in the massacre.
2: Let me let me ask well a couple mm-hmm. of things uh, that that came to mind because this was a a, uh, a very specific time in history it was the end of World War one it was during the Spanish uh, flu epidemic and it was um, uh, also racially very volatile still in the south and it but one of the things I wanted to ask you because of something you said, there were machine guns in 1919.
3: Yes, yes. Well, they had been used in the uh, uh, in World War One, and the um, the contingent federal um, forces military and in, in Pike in Fort Pike had a large number of them, and um, and so the um, and had been. A normal form of of um, of artillery at that time, and uh, and certainly drawn from World War One, and uh, they proceeded to um, and, and all this is documented. I'm not uh, right, um, right, and and um, and so they they brought the machine guns to Phillips County to restore what they considered. Uh, the soldiers considered, and the local white planters considered, a restoration of, of order, and um, that's what they proceeded to do. Um, but they did so by fairly massive uh, murder of um, African American sharecroppers and family members. With
2: something that size, how was it that it it just seemed to, um, sort of disappear? over a short period of time. It just, it was not well known. There were no big trials, no charges filed, uh, very little recording of it as, uh, um, as I understand it. And, and it, it just sort of disappeared and isn't as well known as uh, some other scuffles well, and right. uh, battles have been.
3: Yeah, that that's true. Um there were charges against African Americans because there were no whites, there were no charges against whites, but uh 300 sharecroppers were uh, imprisoned and 72 were convicted of um charges ranging from first-degree murder to night riding. Um 60, I'm sorry, 60, 74, 62 went to a prison farm, and then they, uh, then 12 went to the Walls Penitentiary outside of Little Rock to be electrocuted. But um, as it turned out, there was a, really quite a heroic figure, an African-American um, lawyer out of Little Rock named Scipio Africanus Jones, who started as a laborer in the fields uh, south of Little Rock in Tulip, Arkansas, who eventually became a lawyer in his mid-20s and had a spectacular career as an African-American attorney. Um, And he took on, personally took it on. It was funded in part by the NAACP, to um, uh, to defend um these um, uh the sharecroppers who who were f- had been found guilty locally so he he came in during the appellate division uh, appellate provision time and um, and um, did a very very effective job within 5 years all 74 were free in addition to that, um, a, uh, a case called Moore v. Dempsey made its way all the way to the Supreme Court uh, where in an opinion uh, that was the majority opinion written by Oliver Wendell Holmes um, made a determination for the first time that the federal government can intercede the federal court system can intercede uh, when uh, there are clearly outrageous and unfair treatment of of American citizens at the state or local level in judicial proceedings. Prior to 1923, when this decision came down, the uh, Supreme Court had all had always ruled. That states had the right to determine the civil rights of uh, individuals within their jurisdiction. However, relying on the 14th Amendment, which was passed in 1868, um, which provided for equal protection under the law, um, but had never really been implemented to any ext- extent by the uh, Supreme Court. Um, um uh, by in nineteen twenty three with Holmes writing the opinion, that all changed so there were, you know there's a little bit of a silver lining that came out of this um out of this event but going to your original question how did why wasn 't how did how how
2: did this not make it into all of our our history books
3: uh, well initially it was fairly well known throughout the throughout the country i mean the Uh, The black press really um, gave a lot of attention to it, but then it died out, Um, and there were reasons for that. I mean, the remote location where this happened, uh, number one. Uh, Number two, um, a large number of the um, black workers, uh, farm workers in Phillips County left. Um, You know, the family members were quite upset about it. There are many stories about families just uh, immediately leaving leaving the county going to other states to uh, set up a new life. Um, Three, um, it was a very volatile time as you as you correctly point out and the whites were not interested in, in talking much about it because it was going to affect the economic base of uh, Phillips County which at the time it was one of uh, the county seat was like the sixth largest city in Arkansas it's become much smaller over time but at the time it had uh, at that time it was uh, it had a pretty aggressive economic development program and the idea that this would be known throughout the country um, so there was a desire for the whites not to talk about it. And there was fear among the the blacks who remained uh, really not to talk much about it. In fact, um, there were notices sent out by the um, uh, plutocrats and the leaders of um, the white. Uh, there was a committee of seven that had been formed um, right after the massacre to uh, adjudicate the, the uh, crimes against the blacks, but also to try to put a lid on the information that was coming out. And they sent out flyers throughout the county telling people to keep quiet about it. And, um, and then, you know, it, it, the country has a way of moving on, and it certainly moved on. And this was just not, um, it was not a major event. But it has become, um, in the last 20 years or so, it's become a lot more attention has been paid to it. A couple of important books have come out um, that came out in the 2000 to 2008 um, range. And hopefully my book will add to the attention that, uh, at th- that the massacre has, uh, has received or not received over... Um, over time, did did you have an interest
2: in um, race relations before you found out about your maternal grandfather Lonnie, uh, your your childhood buddy, um, before you found out about his connection, his involvement in that event?
3: Very much so, Tom. Um,
2: so it must have been I- sort of shocking when you realized that. You know um, that that your grandfather had been part of such an event,
3: yeah, it sort of shocked me to the core in many ways um, as I went through and um, civil rights and black liberation movement uh, even though I'm white, um, had been a an element that i uh, an area that I had concentrated on over my over my life i um not just on an intellectual basis but uh on a committed basis i had um in addition to i mentioned about writing the litany but when uh um i was in college i spent uh time in the south um, observing writing um about it um and then when King was murdered, I was living in New York at the time, and I went back to the Mississippi River Delta and taught in an all-African-American public school, 6th through the 12th grades, um, before integration. And um, so it was, you know, it was an area that was important to me. And I, why me? I'm not, not absolutely... Sure, uh, but uh, it was uh, it was something that I was I was committed to. Um.
2: Now I I also want to ask. Now the book Damaged Heritage talks about the Elaine race massacre, and and retells that story, but is also a story of reconciliation. And I, I guess I have two sort of directions that that I want to go in. One is, uh, you know, what is the story of reconciliation, but also, what does reconciliation mean to you?
3: Well, the uh, the area of reconciliation is a uh, is a manner by which we can we collectively, blacks, whites. Um, can move into an area where there is not um, recurring racism. Um, I mean, the one big shadow over this country um, is its 400 years of um, racial subjugation of whites over African Americans. And and there is a... um, I believe reconciliation in the broadest sense, um, is an area that needs to be pursued, um, by both blacks and whites. Um, and it is a way of where we, I'll just give you the example of, um, my experience with Sheila Walker, who, as I said, wrote the forward to the book and has become a very good friend. Um, but we went through several phases in our relationship as we have been on a journey of reconciliation since 2014. And one of the most, and one of the key elements of it to start with um, was our respective views of what actually happened in Elaine. And we had conversations, uh, extensive conversations, about um, about what actually happened. And it is really key for in reconciliation that um, the two parties uh, agree upon the events that history has provided us and there is a white narrative related to elaine that um, i discount but has been has existed since 1919 and that was it the first 15 to 20 killed that's all that all the african americans who were killed in the military restored order and that was it but we know that that's not the case and so Sheila and I spent a good deal of time going through the the true story of what happened at Elaine and our coming together on exactly what happened. And um, that was the first phase. Then the second phase was dealing with the issue of what do we consider to be the genuinely human between... Between people, um, the commonality that exists, um, that that holds the glue together of not of of, of interpersonal relations, and that that um, collective or commonality, which I like to call the genuinely human, is an expression of of that view of. That there is something fundamentally connective about people that go will that can go beyond a difference in color, a difference in language, a difference in customs, a difference in traditions, in accents, and all of that. Um, unfortunately, a lot of American whites see that if there's a slight bit of difference between people. Those differences have to be magnified and and used for separation. But the other side of it is in terms of ge- the genuinely human and adopting the genuinely human. That that is um, that's what draws us together. And then there's the the issue of of well, I I'll, I'll may. There's a philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote 170 years ago that people do not gain any knowledge about the genuinely human from past generations. That there is a need for each generation to accept. What is the genuinely human in each other um and I believe that and and Sheila and I adhered to that that there was that we are committed to each other, we are allies with each other um, we are this is not a just a theoretical journey that we are taking this is a journey of individuals that um have a purpose in life, that care for each other, uh, that are, ha, have deep friendship, and that that is a model on which reconciliation can be um, uh, can be emulated. Um, and so that is, those are some of the fundamental elements that drive, uh, drive us toward reconciliation um and uh, an ability to eliminate this continuing racism that goes on from generation to generation you see tom i there's an element in this book and something after all the years that i've been involved in this and the thought process that um white racism it consists of two major elements. One is... Chester, sorry.
2: Let, um, let, let, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but I have to sure. go to another break here. Can you stick around, and we'll sure. we'll kind of wrap up this uh, okay. this conversation. My guest sure. is Chester Johnson, the author of Damaged Heritage, about the Elaine Race Massacre and a Story of Reconciliation. If you're listening to us on 92.1 FM, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, and then we'll be right back.
1: Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now.
4: I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors.
1: Rod
3: Serling. Rod Serling.
1: What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All
2: right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having
1: made this little jaunt into the
2: Twilight Zone... I
0: got a feeling something strange is about to happen.
2: In the Twilight Zone.
0: Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: Welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is Chester Johnson, the author of Damaged Heritage, The Elaine Race Massacre, and a Story of Reconciliation. And, Chester, uh, thanks for sticking around. I appreciate it. No, no. It's my pleasure. And just before Um, the break, you were talking about uh, two aspects of of white racism.
3: Well, I'm of the opinion that um, I grew up in a racist region um, southeast Arkansas, on the Mississippi River Delta, um, in a racist family, and um, I know a lot about racism. And my view is that there are two elements that constitute a continuation, the the momentum they they, they drive the momentum for continuation of racism, and those are. Damaged Heritage, um, which is the, I think it's probably self-explanatory, that is from, uh, it is the um, legacy of um, subjugation, evidence of that legacy that is brought forward, that, uh, that create the difference between white privilege and um, and black subjugation, and occasionally it involves um, violence uh, in order to keep um, that subjugation in place. But it's combined. This damaged heritage is combined with. Um, the excessive um, reverence of the past and tradition um, is defined as filiopietism, a fancy name for <laughs> this excessive uh, this exce- I- I excessive reverence for the past. Um, and this excessive, you know, my view is that, mm, that in most generations, most people knew that it, the subjugation of blacks was most white folks knew the subjugation of blacks was wrong, and they inherited this damaged heritage well why didn't they stop it why did, well, and that's an interesting you can go back to the you know eighteenth century and the forming of this country and George Mason's comments about how slavery was immoral and and it damaged the soul of of white America. And George Washington, uh, in his last will and testament, put in process for freeing freeing his slaves. And I think from generation to generation, people knew, white folks knew it was wrong. But the one thing that kept them going was this—I'll use the fifty-cent word—the filio pietism, this excessive reverence of the past, which actually it inoculated, it camouflaged, it hidden, it hid the existence of of damaged heritage or the recon- acknowledgement of damaged heritage, by virtue of this facade and. Of um excessive veneration of the past, and that is given that has given people uh, white folks an excuse to continue this racism um, and only through what I discussed before this um this commitment to the genuinely human, and the recognition that it is it is my responsibility it's my time it is. Yeah, I'm not uh, covered extensively only by the past and the future doesn't have any effect on me either. I individually make the commitment to the genuinely human and those are some of the elements that go into the reconciliation that's been in place and it continues to be in place for, our, for the deep friendship and our journey on reconciliation between Sheila Walker and and me.
2: The name of the book is Damaged Heritage, a look at uh, the Elaine Race Massacre and a story of reconciliation by my guest Jay Chester Johnson. Uh, Chester, we gotta wrap it up, but uh, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Obviously the book is a great place
3: to start. Um, Do you have a website Yes, I do. It's just uh, www.jchesterjohnson.com, and uh, they'll give you it'll give you more information than you want to know about it. It's a it's a dynamite uh, website. I'll, I have to say, and, it may uh, even teach
2: you how to spell filiopiatism.
3: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs>
2: or pietism, however you <laughs> right. pronounce it. Uh, Chester, it's been an honor and a privilege talking with you. Thanks so much.
3: Well, thank you for having me, and um, I'd love to come back some, some time later.
2: All right. Well, we'll okay. do that. Thank you very okay. much. Okay.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: That was uh, Chester Johnson. He is a poet, essayist, and translator. He is the author of several celebrated poetry collections and nonfiction work as well. He served as the Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury Department under Jimmy Carter and uh, lives in New York City with his wife. The book is Damaged Heritage, The Elaine Race Massacre, and A Story of Reconciliation. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight up. <music>
1: This isolated life ain't all that bad Am I just lazy? Maybe But it's a welcome change of pace from the badness To the right And stay inside you might just
3: save a life. Or two, or three, or four, or maybe five. Let's save lives. Are we crazy?
1: Baby, this isolated life ain't long.
2: It up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. Thanks for coming along. Hope you enjoyed my conversations uh, this um, last hour with uh, Chester Johnson talking about the Elaine Massacre. What a fascinating story, both uh, the story itself and his personal connection to it. And then before that, in the middle of our three hour tour, we talked. Uh, with the co-founders of Teaching While White, Jenna Chandler Ward and Elizabeth Denevy, um, about their uh, the book they co-authored, uh, Learning and Teaching While White, Anti-Racist Strategies for School Communities. We started out this morning with um, a revisit with uh, a um, number one New York Times best-selling author, Melissa Dela Cruz. She's been on the show at least once before, maybe twice, but she was back again. In fact, her husband, who is also a writer, a uh, very successful writer, was on just a few weeks ago, and <clears throat> um they wrote a book uh, series together, Heart of, the Heart of Dread series. But her new book, Afterlife, is what she was uh, talking about this morning. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. She's always a lot of fun to talk to. In the meantime, that smoking George Winters, tickling the Ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And I hope you will be too. Good night, everybody.
0: The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show